So in the reading corner today, I'm delighted to be welcoming zoologist and film and radio documentary maker, Justin Anderson. Now, Justin has, uh, amongst his credits, has a Radio 4 documentary about tracking Arctic wolves, and perhaps most famously uh, was responsible for the mountain segment of the Planet Earth 2 series, which involved filming in the high mountains in Pakistan, tracking the snow, the elusive, I should say, snow leopard. And of course, that led to a publication of Snow Leopard, Grey Ghost of the Mountain. We're going to be talking about all of this today. And we're also going to be talking about Justin's new book, uh, which is all about the narwhal, the unicorn of the oceans. So welcome, Justin. I am excited to be talking to you. Anything with animals really gets me going. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for having me. And I want to start, first of all, with your documentary making, because obviously there's a very close connection between that and the children's books. Um, Perhaps we could start with that famous filming of the snow leopard and the mountains. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about that experience and capturing the footage of those very elusive creatures? Oh, it gives me really happy memories thinking back to that. Um, we were lucky enough to visit uh, Ladakh, which is a, a region in northern India, uh, across three years. We filmed across three years. And, um, and you know, seeing a snow leopard for the first time was always a, a, um, a highlight for me. They, they say it's like your, your soul is singing when you see one. It's, it's quite an indescribable feeling. Um, you just feel incredibly lucky and privileged to see one. But um, a big part of, of that journey and that experience was getting to know the the local people there over a number of visits and um i'm you know close friends with them even now so so it's been yeah fantastic for me and were the local people very helpful in pointing you in the direction of where you might look oh absolutely yeah so we would have no chance of seeing the snow leopards without without the knowledge and the input of the local people um just even like local villagers who telling us where they'd seen them um, down to the, the kind of wildlife guards in the national parks where we worked, who'd actually studied them with camera traps and, and could give us a pointer of where to, where to kind of look and where to set up. And, and that's the same for any animal across any documentary that, that, that we make um, without, without that local knowledge or scientific knowledge as well. It's really, really hard to kind of know where to even start. Mm. So what was the first site like? Can you remember that? Oh. Uh, yeah, slightly embarrassingly, I was looking through the binoculars and couldn't see it. And everyone around me was dancing for joy. And I felt slightly like uh, the kind of dull guy in the kitchen at the party. What's going on here? I can't even see this thing. Where is it? Are you sure it's there? And then finally, I did see it. I kind of caught up with everyone else. And it was amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And wow. I did a little jig as well. Uh, I, I want to explore that word documentary and think about it in relation to story um what what is the difference I mean how do you define documentary because to me it seems to be about telling stories I mean there's a slight gray area isn't there with with that word documentary for me means the real world um and you can still have stories in the real world I think uh, and that's what we try to do with um with a uh, natural history film but also kind of through the books as well is, is focus on um you know incredible stories that are actually 100% real and they're the best type of stories to me. So I'm interested then in 
filmmaking and capturing the footage, if you like, if it's still called that. Do you have a story in mind already or is that going to emerge out of what you actually capture? Yeah, very much so. We we um, Because obviously over the course of a film, you have to have a narrative across the film. Um, so we do we do look for stories in advance and things that are likely to happen, and we build our shoots around likely behaviours and likely encounters. But saying that, Mother Nature doesn't always play the game, and <laughs> we do sometimes show up somewhere and, and everything's completely different this year, or other things happen that, that we don't expect. Um, an example of that, say, would be Planet Earth 2, where we managed to film an encounter between four snow leopards, um, and I would have been a bit crazy to ever put that into a, a script before we headed out because we never would have imagined to, to get something like that. So so sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you just have to adapt the story to, to, to what you see on the ground. Mm, I guess in a way there are some similarities there with writing stories in as much as there are always surprises no matter what your original plan uh, would have been. <laughs> Sure, I think sometimes good things come out of the creative process, don't they? Things that kind of take you by surprise and um, and emerge as as the thing unfolds. So, so I, you've always got to be open to that. I think. Let's move on to what came out of or, or a kind of byproduct, if you like, Snow Leopard, the first book that you did with Walker. Did they approach you having seen the film, or did you? think I've got to write a children's book about this. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was interesting. My um so for for many years kind of previous to that, I've been reading um Walker's nature story books um to my own kids. And um I think it was my daughter said to me one night, um, Dad, you should write one about snow leopards. And I thought, you know, that's not a bad idea. But I'd never done anything like it and I didn't really know where to start. So I basically wrote a, an email to Walker saying, I think this is a why snow leopards are amazing. I think I gave them 10 reasons why they're the most amazing cats and and why it would make a great book. And uh, a fair while passed, and I think someone finally picked up the email um, and they contacted me and said, well, we should start talking about this. And um, and I think originally they were wondering whether I would want to write it or be interested in writing it. Um, they, they wanted a book on snow leopards. And, um, and I was super excited about the prospect of that. So I was very pleased when they were when they were happy to give me a chance, really, to, to have a go at it. So you're obviously used to writing because you do write scripts for the films that you're making. That's right, yeah. So, say, for Planet Earth 2, which was narrated by Sir David Attenborough, I would write the script and um, there'd be input from, say, him and the executive producer and things, but the, the producer, which is my role, is, is mainly responsible for, for drafting the script. And... Um, it's got quite a lot in common, really, with with writing books. Um, you think it'd be very different, but um, but on television, the, the the big the big limiting factor is the time. Um, you have small spaces to to fit your words, and they have to be very succinct, and and they have to engage people and have an emotional kind of resonance, but also kind of a factual heart to it as well. And that's not unlike writing for children. I think um, I think the language is probably. Uh, a bit different and um, you can't get away with as many biological terms for writing for children you have to simplify things a bit and and there might be a few things that I find fascinating as a zoologist that children will probably think weren't necessarily interesting at all 
So um, there are a few filters that you have to pass through, but there is quite a lot in common, I think, in the discipline of it, I guess. Mm, That's really interesting to hear. Of course, uh, you're right that the terminology, you can't include it all. But one of the things that the nature storybooks that Walker produce allow is for you to have a narrative and then a smaller section of information or exposition and sometimes the terminology is introduced there for instance in the narwhal book I was reading the bit where they navigate in the dark and I'm thinking that's echolocation and then of course it actually says that in the information text so you do find ways of weaving key vocabulary in yeah I, I love that um, that combination of the two in in Walker's um, nature storybooks. It's always been a a real draw for me, and I think it's like you have that lovely overarching narrative in the big text, but actually, if you want to to kind of delve into the the deeper facts and some of the kind of quirkier facts, which which sometimes are quite hard to build into a narrative of a character or an animal, you you have a secondary text, um, you know, in a different font somewhere else on the page. Um, they also have a glossary as well, which is really great. I think for kids. So, so if there is any kind of slightly more complex biological terms or, or references, you, you kind of have to explain them then in a simpler language. And then you have to be careful, of course, that the definition is understandable because sometimes it can be you get to a glossary and actually the reader's none the wiser after they've read this really opaque definition. Sure. I think there's a, a certain amount with biologists as well, a certain amount of assumed knowledge. Um, and, you know, I guess originally I came from a scientific background. And if I go back now to read scientific papers as part of my research for stories and things, it's a struggle sometimes because that, that's a world where language is it's almost like a, a club that, that very few people get to access it. It's not written in an accessible way. And it's the opposite, if you like, of writing for children. So it's an interesting juxtaposition of kind of two worlds uh, yeah. that, that we have to kind of cross to, yeah. to kind of, you know, research the facts but then kind of then repackage them in a way that's kind of accessible for for younger kids I mean I do want to talk about narwhal now does this also come out of a film or once you've got into writing for children do you think that'd be a really interesting creature to write about a bit of both really I I did I did I was lucky enough to to film narwhal um a while back for, for for a film for BBC One and they are similarly like the, the snow leopard, very elusive, very little known about them, hard to research, hard to even see. And I thought, what a great subject for a book. Uh, there's also the fact that they seem to be really, really popular in, in, in kind of kids' culture at the moment with little animations and, and you, know, you can get the plush toys everywhere. And, and I think though most people don't really know the first thing about them. <laughs> so I thought well, maybe there's a bit of a, a gap here that I can fill with with a, with a story that's that's you know 100 factual, um, mm. and and no less wonderful for it. Um, I think that's the thing about them. They're they're seen as this magical creature, but the magic is real. Really, they're they're a real mythical beast come to life. Um, mm. So a great subject for a book. Yeah, I mean, I th- there were things that I discovered that I found quite staggering. Actually, I don't know why I had thought of them as solitary creatures probably because of popular culture and only ever seeing one at a time Uh, but what really came across in your nature storybook first of all about them swimming in pods of around 20 
But then getting together, and there's a picture by Joe Weaver, the illustrator, that shows them navigating through a crack in the ice. And there's hundreds of them together. Uh, is that a sight that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that those those images in the book, I, I think Joe's done brilliantly to bring to life. And um, I, I was lucky enough to um, you know travel to the, the north of Baffin Island, where, where the story is set, which is just an incredible landscape of kind of shimmering blue icebergs and and you know sharp precipices and fjords. It's an incredible coastline that the narwhal uh, migrate along. Um, and you know you get these leads, these cracks in the ice, and and we were we were um, filming from a helicopter, and um, I couldn't quite believe it when when we started to see narwhal. There were so many of them, and um, and all of them ploughing down these these kind of highways through the ice, these leads, and it's I think an amazing perspective from the air um, that you you wouldn't get to see. Um, so we were very lucky in that regard, and that's something that Joe's definitely kind of included in the book is that kind of. The idea of looking down on them and, and seeing them—it's um, hard to get out on the ice, you see, because it's breaking up. So, so it's a dangerous place to be on foot. Um, so, seeing them from the air is is a is a really remarkable perspective. Mm. You talked about using a helicopter. Has drone uh, footage made a big difference to your work? Yeah, increasingly. Yeah, I mean, when I first started, it, it was helicopters all the way. Um, which made it difficult and expensive um, and sometimes not even possible. But drones have slowly but surely kind of taken over and they're kind of much easier to afford and, you know, better for the environment, which is great. And presumably not as noisy for the animals. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing with the the, the rigs that we had on the helicopters is that they had the most powerful lenses. So so we were always a long long way off when when we filmed, so not to disturb the animals. Um, Drones, I think, um, can be quieter. I think in the wrong hands, they can be, they can be very disturbing. So, so mm. we're always really careful to work with people mm. who kind of um, are very mindful of that. But yes, yeah, it's, it's a perspective that that kind of has, it's a new perspective on the natural world that that's some um, really open doors for our storytelling. Interesting. Just coming back to Narble, um again, uh, the book has a kind of theme that underpins it and that's the mystery of the narwhal's tusk. Uh, One of the things that I like about great science writing, in this case writing about the natural world, is the acknowledgement that we don't know everything and and there are possible uses for this tusk which you detail in the book. I wonder if you could tell us about some of them and what people think. Sure, sure. well, I mean, the amazing thing to say about the tusk is that it's it's actually a tooth. It's the most remarkable tooth in the natural world. So it's the upper left canine tooth, um, which kind of grows through the top of the mouth um, and, and can grow up to three metres long, um, which is like the most extraordinary tooth. It's spiralled as well. So, so it grows in a very bizarre spiral pattern. And all males have this tusk, but only like a, um, two in 10 females will have it. So, so that's led to lots of debate about about what we think it's for. Um, scientists have, have said suggested that it's a, a weapon for spearing fish, but but then how would they get the fish off the end of the spear? Uh, other scientists have discovered that there's there's it contains millions of tiny kind of nerves, um, so it's very very sensitive and might be sensitive to salt in the water or water pressure. And might be a way that uh, a sense a sensory device, if you like, for the narwhal 
to either find food in in the, in the depths where they live um or to kind of um find their way uh, so there's lots of debate about that but there's also the fact that um if it's for finding food um well why wouldn't all females need one so that's the big question there so 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 that's kind of led to the, I, I think the current consensus is that um is that it's almost like a peacock's train uh it's a it's an ornament for males to to attract females um but then recently was it a couple of years ago just to add uh, a bit of a uh, something in the mix there a, a male uh, a narwhal's filmed um actually using its tusk to stun a fish with a with a drone as you were talking about um up in the arctic so so it may be that this this remarkable tooth is actually a bit of a swiss army knife and it, it could have a um be mainly for kind of um attracting the opposite sex but but probably has lots of other uses as well that we can only just begin to imagine mm. so it's it's an incredible thing and some of them grow two tusks yeah i think it's a one in 500 males uh, are what they call a double tusker and that that's amazing it's <laughs> a thing there's creatures out there swimming around that are that have two tusks mm. and um yeah, who knows what the mystery is there. <laughs> There's also another message that uh, very gently comes through, and that's about, obviously, the ice melting and their predators, which are the killer whales. Increasingly, they're going to be less able to avoid those predators. I mean, that's one of the possible sure. scenarios yeah so the narwhal migrate north and, and the, the book follows that story as the ice retreats but the narwhal don't have a, a dorsal fin uh, and that's an adaptation we believe for them being able to surface with, with ice above them and come up to the surface and swim very close to the ice whereas orca killer whales uh, like a male killer whale can have a six foot dorsal fin as you know as tall as me um and that's obviously a bit of a a problem if you've got like an icy ceiling above you you know you're always going to be hitting hitting the top so with the ice disappearing more they think that's opened up the arctic for the killer whales to to kind of move further north and and to follow the narwhal and there's like more and more reports of that of that happening particularly where where we were filming in an area called eclipse sound at the at the north of baffin island um it seems to be that orcas are, are being increasingly, you know, regularly encountered, and and they're definitely there to feed on the, on the other Arctic whales, the belugas and, and the narwhal too. We've talked sure. about Joe Weaver's illustration, but I'd love to know from you uh, whether there was any particular illustration that we could talk about that had really taken your breath away, or or made you think, gosh, that's exactly what it's like, or that really captured a feeling for for the place or that sure sure yeah definitely i think the one the one i can't stop looking at is the uh the lone narwhal under the ice that finds the the hole as seen from below the ice so presumably you've not seen from below or have you have you no so as as part of our filming um we did have a, a crew on the ice trying to get underwater shots with um what we call pole cams, which are cameras on poles that you kind of put over the edge of the ice. Very, very difficult to get shots of narwhal underwater. I think it's only been done a couple of times. So to be able to kind of step back on that scene and, and see the tiny narwhal and the tiny hole in the ice and, and 
and really kind of get an idea of visually how that world looks for them is really exciting to me. It's a lovely illustration. And fantastic use of light coming through the hole in the ice, but you really get a sense of the absolute darkness at the periphery of those images. And it must be incredibly dark down there where they're swimming, which, of course, is why they use echolocation. Sure. We think that their eyesight's probably quite poor. Um, so echolocation may be their main um, way of finding their way around. And um, in terms of their echolocation, I think it's like a, a thousand clicks a second they've been measured at. These, these rapid bursts, pulses of sound that they make that um, then bounce back off, off the icy ceiling and, and anything hard in the water. And, and it gives them a mental map of, of, of um, what's before them. So they kind of use sound like a flashlight um, because their world is so dark um, mm. to find their way through. Fantastic. It is another really delightful book. And we'll probably be going into our next top 100 uh, oh, that we do. Fingers crossed. Year, I, <laughs> I just had a couple of uh, questions to end on, really. Maybe they're a bit obvious, but I am genuinely interested to know the answer. And that is of all the places that you haven't yet filmed, where do you most want to go? It's a really good one. <laughs> uh, I think I've never been to Antarctica and I'd really love to go, have the chance to go there. I've had a few projects that it looked like I might be going that way, but but didn't quite work out. So um, that's a big, a big um, bucket list one for me is, is to go south and see the ice there and see the penguins and, and of course, all the whales and wildlife that, that are there too. And people don't realise it's very different, isn't it, to the Arctic. So there's a lot more land mass, isn't there? Yeah, well, the Arctic is 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 an ocean, a frozen ocean surrounded by continents. So it's got a ring of land, and and the Antarctic's the opposite. It's it's land uh, surrounded by ocean that freezes. So very very different. Uh, I mean, they have some similarities. I think the Arctic is. I mean, I've filmed a lot in the Arctic and and spent a lot of time there. It's a uh, it's a very diverse place because there's obviously lots of cultures there, human cultures and and um, and communities and things. So, so that makes it very interesting. Um, so it's more of a jigsaw of a place, I think. Um, whereas Antarctica is is perhaps more the pristine wilderness mm. of our imaginations, and human presence there is is kind of limited and kind of temporary, if you like. So so yeah, I've always been wanted to go there. Hopefully one day. That's really interesting. It hasn't escaped me that all of the places that we've talked about so far are cold. <laughs> yeah, I've got an unfortunate reputation for doing cold things. Which are, part of me is like, oh, maybe if I was at the start of this again, I would have, I would have done more kind of tropical beach related kind of filming and become a bit of an expert in in Caribbean or somewhere like that. Um, but no, I love I love cold places, and uh, I mean the Arctic's an incredible place to visit it's got something that really gets under your skin and into your soul and and um it's it's got kind of a mysticism and a magic to it that that um it's really really hard to to not want to go back and very final question we're off to the antarctic which creature do you most want to see when you get there uh, i'd have to be the emperor penguin you know for me it's the one animal that has the most dramatic narrative of, of a life story in terms of the, the fact that the males overwinter there holding this precious egg on their feet and, and the females then undertake this huge journey to bring back the first food for the chick. And um, yeah, it's just such a spectacular story. So yeah, I'd love to see, I'd love to see emperor penguins. 
Well, we hope you get to do the filming. And then what we hope is that we have another children's book after that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this morning, Justin. Thank you for joining me in the Reading Corner. Uh, It's been great. Thanks so much for having me. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Walker Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.